was an Anglican bishop in the Church of England in the 1800s. And he preached many glorious sermons upon several doctrines of Scripture and of Christ and of the church. And this morning, the sermon that I want to preach to you is entitled, The True Church, The True Church by J.C. Ryle. And it's founded upon Matthew chapter 16. Take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Hear now the word of the living God. And I will say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Let's pray. Now, blessed Lord, we have heard the words of Christ from the Gospel of Matthew. We pray that this message that we will hear, though preached several a hundred years ago, would rest in our hearts and our minds that we would believe its eternal truths and timeless truths. We would contemplate and think about our own situations and circumstances, and we would put great thought into what is brought forth from these words for us to eat upon, feed upon, digest, and to make part of our daily lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, beloved, we live in a world in which all things are passing away. Kingdoms, empires, cities, institutions, families. All are liable to change and corruption. One universal law seems to prevail everywhere. In all created things, there is a tendency to decay. There is something sad and depressing in this. What profit has a man in the labor of his hands. Is there nothing that shall stand? Is there nothing that shall last? Is there nothing that shall endure? And is there nothing of which we can say, this shall continue forever? Now you have the answer to these questions in the words of our text. Our Lord Jesus Christ speaks of something which shall continue and not pass away. There is one created thing which is an exception to the universal rule to which I have referred. And there is one thing which shall never perish and pass away. That thing is the building founded upon the rock. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ. He declares in the words you have heard. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. There are five things in these words which demand your attention. First, a building, my church. Secondly, a builder. Christ says, I will build my church. Thirdly, a foundation. On this rock I will build my church. Fourthly, Perils implied, the gates of hell. Fifthly, security asserted, the gates of hell will not overcome it. 
And may God bless these words that shall be spoken. And may we all search our own hearts and know whether or not we belong to this one church. May we all go home and reflect and pray. First, you have a building mentioned in the text. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks of my church. Now, what is this church? Few inquiries can be made of more importance than this. For lack of due attention to this subject, the errors that have crept into the church and into the world are neither few nor small. The church of our text is no material building. It is no temple made with hands of wood or brick or stone or marble. It is a company of men and women. It is no particular visible church on earth. It is not the Eastern Church or the Western Church. It is not the Church of England or the Church of Scotland. Much less, it is not the Church of Rome. The Church of our text is not is one that makes far less show in the eyes of man, but is far more importance in the eyes of God. The church of our text is made up of all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It comprehends all who have repented of sin, who have fled to Christ by faith, who have been made new creatures in Him. It comprises all God's elect, all who have received God's grace, all who have been washed in Christ's blood, all who have been clothed in Christ's righteousness, all who have been born again and sanctified by Christ's Spirit. All such of every nation and people and tongue compose the church of our text. Now, this is the body of Christ. This is the flock of Christ. This is the bride of Christ. This is the Lamb's wife. This is the church on the rock. The members of this church do not all worship God in the same way or use the same form of government. Our own 34th article declares, quote, It is not necessary that ceremony should be in all places one and alike, end quote. But they all worship with one heart. They all are led by one spirit. They all are really and truly holy. They can all say hallelujah. And they can all reply amen. This is that church to which all visible churches on earth are servants. Whether they are Episcopalian, Independent, or Presbyterian, they all serve the interest of the one true church. They are the scaffolding behind which the great building is carried on. They are the husk under which the living kernel grows. They have their various degrees of usefulness. The best and worthiest of them is that which trains up the most members of Christ's true church. But no visible church has the right to say, quote, We are the only true church. We are the men and truth shall die with us, end quote. No visible church should ever dare to say, we shall stand forever and the gates of hell will not overcome us. 
This is that church to which belong the Lord's precious promises of preservation, continuance, protection, and final glory. Whatever, says Hooker, quote, we read in Scripture concerning the endless love and saving mercy which God shows towards His churches, the only proper subject is this church, which we properly term the mystical body of Christ. End quote. Small and despised as the true church may be in this world, it is precious and honorable in the sight of God. The temple of Solomon in all of its glory was nothing in comparison with that church which is built upon the rock. Men and brethren, See that you hold sound doctrine on the subject of the church. A mistake here may lead to dangerous, soul-ruining errors. The church which is made up of true believers is the church for which we, who are ministers, are especially ordained to preach. The church which comprises all who repent and believe the gospel is the church to which we desire you to belong. Our work is not done, and our hearts are not satisfied until you are made new creatures and are members of the true church. Outside this church, there can be no salvation. And I pass on to the second point to which I propose to call your attention Secondly, our text contains not merely a building, but a builder. The Lord Jesus Christ declares, I will build my church. The true church of Christ is tenderly cared for by all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. In the economy of redemption beyond all doubt, God the Father chooses and God the Holy Spirit sanctifies every member of Christ's mystical body. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, cooperate for the salvation of every saved soul. This is truth, which ought never to be forgotten. Nevertheless, there is a particular sense in which the help of the church is laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is peculiarly and preeminently the Redeemer and Savior. Therefore, it is that we find him saying in our text, I will build. The work of building is my special work. It is Christ who calls the members of the church in due time. They are the called of Jesus Christ, Romans 1 verse 6. It is Christ who gives them life. The Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. John 5, 21. It is Christ who washes away their sins. He who loves us and has freed us from all our sins by His blood. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. It is Christ who gives them peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. John 14, verse 27. It is Christ who gives them eternal life. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. John 10, 28. It is Christ who grants them repentance. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance. Acts 5, 31. 
It is Christ who enables them to become God's children. To all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. John chapter 1 verse 12. It is Christ who carries on the work within them when it is begun. Because I live, you also will live. John 14 and verse 19. In short, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Colossians 1.19 He is the author and finisher of faith. From him, every joint and member of the mystical body of Christians is supplied. Through him, they are strengthened for duty. By him, they are kept from falling. He shall preserve them to the end and present them faultless before the Father's throne with exceedingly great joy. He is all things and in all in all to believers. The mighty agent by whom the Lord Jesus Christ carries out this work in the number of his churches is without a doubt the Holy Spirit. He it is who applies Christ and his benefits to the soul. He it is who is ever renewing, ever awakening, ever convincing, ever leading to the cross, ever transforming, ever taking out of the world stone after stone and adding it to the mystical building. But the great chief builder who has undertaken to execute the work of redemption and bring it to completion is the Son of God. The Word who was made flesh. It is Jesus Christ who builds His church. In building the true church, the Lord Jesus condescends to use many subordinate instruments. The ministry of the gospel the circulation of the Scriptures, the friendly rebuke, the words spoken in season, the drawing influence of affections, all, all are means and methods by which His work is carried on. But Christ is the great superintending architect, ordering, guiding, directing all that is done. What the sun is to the whole solar system, Christ is to all the members of the true church. Paul may plant and Apollos water, but God gives the increase. Ministers may preach and writers may write, but the Lord Jesus Christ alone can build. And except he builds, the work stands still. Now, great is the wisdom with which the Lord Jesus Christ builds His church. All is done at the right time and in the right way. Each stone in its turn is put in the right place. Sometimes He chooses great stones. And sometimes He chooses small stones. Sometimes the work moves fast. Sometimes it moves slowly. Man is frequently impatient and thinks that nothing is happening. But man's time is not God's time. A thousand years in His sight are but as a single day. The great builder makes no mistakes. 
He knows what He is doing. He sees the end from the beginning. He works by a perfect, unalterable, and certain plan. The mightiest conceptions of architects like Michelangelo were mere insignificant child's play in comparison with Christ's wise counsels respecting His church. Great is the condescension and mercy which Christ exhibits in building His church. He often chooses the most unlikely and roughest stones and fits them into a most excellent work. He despises no one, rejects none, on account of former sins and past transgressions. He delights to show mercy. He often takes the most thoughtless and ungodly and and transforms them into polished corners of His spiritual temple. Great is the power which Christ displays in building His church. He carries on His work in spite of opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. In storm and chaos, through troublesome times, silently, quietly, without noise, without stir, without excitement, the building progresses. I will work, he declares, and none shall hinder it. Brethren, the children of this world take no interest in the building of this church. They care nothing for the conversion of souls. What are broken spirits and penitent hearts to them? It's all foolishness in their eyes. But while the children of this world care nothing, there is joy in the presence of angels of God. For the preserving of that church, the laws of nature have often been suspended. For the good of that church, all providential dealings of God in this world are ordered and arranged. For the elect's sake, wars have been brought to an end and peace given to a nation. Statesmen, rulers, emperors, kings, presidents, heads of governments have their schemes and plans and think them of vast importance. But there is another work going on of infinitely greater significance for which they are all but as axes and saws in God's hands. That work is the gathering in of living stones into the one true church. How little we are told in God's word about unconverted men. Compared with that, compared with what we are told about believers. The history of Nimrod, the mighty hunter, is dismissed in a few words. The history of Abraham, the father of the faithful, occupies several chapters. Nothing in Scripture is so important as the concerns of the true church. The world makes up little of God's Word. The church and its story make up much. Forever let us thank God, my beloved brethren, That the building of the one true church is laid on the shoulders of one who is mighty. Let us bless God that it does not rest upon man. Let us bless God that it does not depend upon missionaries, ministers, or committees. Christ is the almighty builder. 
And he will carry on his work, though nations and visible churches do not know their duty. Christ will never fail. That which he has undertaken, he will certainly accomplish. And I pass on to the third point, which I propose to, which I propose to consider the foundation upon which the church is built. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us, on this rock, I will build my church. What did the Lord Jesus Christ mean when he spoke of this foundation? Did he mean the Apostle Peter to whom he was speaking? I think assuredly not. I can see no reason if he meant Peter why he did not say, On you I will build my church. If he had meant Peter, he would have said, I will build my church on you as plainly as he said, I will give you the keys. No, it was not the person of the Apostle Peter, but the good confession which the Apostle had just made. It was not Peter, the erring, unstable man, but the mighty truth to which the Father had revealed to Peter. It was the truth concerning Jesus Christ Himself, which was the rock. It was Christ's mediatorialship and Christ's messiahship. It was the blessed truth that Jesus was the promised Savior. The real intercessor between God and man. This was the rock. This was the foundation on which the church of Christ was to be built. My brethren, this foundation was laid at a mighty cost. And it was necessary that the Son of God should take on our nature, take our nature upon Him, and in that nature live, suffer, and die. Not for His own sins, but for ours. It was necessary that in that nature Christ should go to the grave and rise again. It was necessary that in that nature Christ should go up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God, having obtained eternal redemption for all His people. No other foundation but this could have borne the weight of the church of which our text speaks. No other foundation could have met the necessities of a world of sinners. That foundation once laid is very strong. It can bear the weight of the sin of all the world. It has borne the weight of all the sins of all believers who have built on it. Sins of thought. Sins of the imagination. Sins of the heart. Sins of the head. Sins which everyone has seen. And sins which no man has, no man knows. Sins against God. Sins against man. Sins of all kinds and descriptions. That mighty rock can bear the weight of all these sins and not give way. The mediatorial office of Christ is a sufficient remedy for all the sins of the world. To this one foundation, every member of Christ's true church is joined. In many things, believers are disunited and disagreed. In the matter of their soul's foundation, they are all of one mind. They are all built on the rock. Ask where they get their peace. 
hope and joyful expect- expectation of good things to come. And you, will, you would find that it all flows from that one mighty truth. Christ the mediator between God and man. The office that Christ holds as high priest and promise of sinners. There is the point which demands our personal attention. Are we on the rock? Are we really joined to the one foundation? What does that godly man light and say, quote, God has laid this precious stone for this very purpose, that weary sinners may rest upon it. The multitude of imagery, believers lie all around it, but they are not any better for that. Any more than stones that lie loose in heaps near a foundation, but not joined to it. There is no benefit to us by Christ without union with Him. End quote. Look to your foundation, my beloved brethren, if you would know whether or not you are members of the one true church. It is a point that may be known to yourselves. Your public worship we can see. But we cannot see where, whether you are personally built upon the rock. Your attendance at the Lord's table, we can see. But we cannot see whether or not you are joined to Christ. And the one with Christ and Christ in you. But all shall come to light one day. The secrets of all hearts shall be exposed. Perhaps you go to church regularly. You pray faithfully. All this is right and good. So far as it goes. But see that you make no mistake about your own personal salvation. See that your own soul is on the rock. Without this, all else is nothing. Without this, you will never stand in the day of judgment. Better a thousand times in that day to be found in a poor cottage on the rock than in a stately palace on the sand. I proceed now to the fourth point. The implied trials of the church to which our text refers. There is mention made of the gates of hell. By that expression, we are to understand the power of the devil. The history of Christ's true church has always been one of conflict and war. It has been constantly assailed by a deadly enemy, Satan, the prince of this world. The devil hates the true church of Christ with an undying hatred. He is ever stirring up opposition against all its members. He is ever urging the children of this world to do his will and injure and harass the people of God. If he cannot bruise the head, he will bruise the heel. If he cannot rob believers of heaven, he will aggravate them as they travel the road to heaven. For 6,000 years, this hostility has gone on. Millions of of the ungodly have been the devil's agents and done the devil's work though they did not know it. The Pharaohs, 
the Herods, the Neros, the Julians, the Diocletians, the Bloody Marys, were Satan's tools. When they persecuted the disciples of Jesus Christ, warfare with the powers of hell has been the experience of the whole body of Christ. It has, all, it has always been a bush burning, though not consumed. A woman fleeing into the wilderness, but not swallowed up. The visible churches have their times of prosperity and seasons of peace, but never has there been a time of peace for the true church. Its conflict is perpetual, and its battles never ends. Warfare with the powers of hell is the experience of every individual member of the true church. Each has a fight. What are the lives of all the saints but the records of battles? What were such men as Paul and James and Peter and John and Polycarp and Ignatius and Augustine, Luther and Calvin, Latimer and Baxter, but soldiers engaged in a constant warfare? Sometimes their persons have been assailed and sometimes their property. Sometimes they have been harassed by slander, sometimes by open persecution. But in one way or another, the devil has been continually warring against the church. The gates of hell have been continually assaulting the people of Christ. Men and brethren, we who preach the gospel can hold out to all who come to Christ exceedingly great and precious promises. We can offer boldly to you in our Master's name the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Mercy, free grace, and full salvation are offered to everyone who will come to Christ and believe on Him. But we promise you no peace with the world or with the devil. We warn you, on the contrary, that there must be warfare. So long as you are in the body, we would not keep you back or deter you from the service of Christ. But we would have you count the cost and fully understand what Christ's service entails. Hell is behind you. Heaven is before you. Home lies on the other side of a troubled sea. Thousands, tens of thousands have crossed these stormy waters in spite of all opposition, have reached the haven where they would be. Hell has assaulted them, but has not prevailed. Go forward, beloved brethren, and fear not the adversary. Only abide in Christ, and the victory is sure. Marvel not at the hatred of the gates of hell. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. So as long as the world is the world and the devil the devil, there must be warfare and believers in Christ must be soldiers. And the world hated Christ and the world will hate true Christians as long as the earth stands. As the great reformer Luther said, quote, Cain will go on murdering Abel as long as the church is on earth. Be prepared for the hostility of the gates of hell. 
Put on the whole armor of God. The Tower of David contains a thousand shields already for the use of God's people. The weapons of our warfare have been tried by millions of poor sinners like ourselves and have never been found to fail. Be patient under the bitter gates of hell. It is all working together for your good. It tends to sanctify. It keeps you awake. It makes you humble. It drives you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. It it weans you from this world. It it, It helps you to make more of prayer. Above all, it makes you long for heaven. And say with heart as well as lips, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Do not be cast down by the hatred of hell. The warfare of the true child of God is as much a mark of grace as the inward peace which he enjoys. No cross, no crown. No conflict, no saving Christianity. Blessed are you, said our Lord Jesus, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And there remains one thing to be considered, one more thing to be considered. And that is the security of the true church of Christ. There is a glorious promise given by the mighty builder that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He who cannot lie has pledged his royal word that all the powers of hell shall not overthrow his church. It shall continue and stand in spite of every assault. It shall never be overcome. All other created things perish and pass away, but not the church of Christ. The hand of outward violence or the moth of inward decay prevail over everything else, but not over the church that Christ builds. Empires have risen and fallen in rapid succession. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Tyre, Carthage, Rome, Greece, Venice. Where are all these now? They were all creations of man's hands and have passed away. But the church of Christ lives on. The mightiest cities have become heaps of ruins. The broad walls of Babylon are sunk into the ground. The palaces of Nineveh are mounds of dust. The hundred gates of Thebes is only a matter of history. Tyre is a place where fishermen hang their nets. Carthage, a place of desolation. Yet all this time the true church stands. The gates of hell did not prevail against it. The earliest visible churches have in many cases decayed and perished. Where is the church of Ephesus and the church of Antioch? Where is the church of Alexandria and the church of Constantinople? Where are the Corinthian and Philippian and Thessalonian churches? Where indeed are they? And they are departed. They departed from the word of God. They were proud of their bishops and synods and ceremonies and learning and antiquity. They did not glory in the true cross of Christ. They did not hold fast the gospel. They did not give Jesus his rightful office or faith in its rightful place. And they are now among the things that have been. 
Their candlestick has been taken away, but all this time the true church lives on. Has the true church been oppressed in one country? Has it fled to another? Has it been trampled on and oppressed in one soil? Has it taken up root and flourished in some other climate? Fire, sword, prisons, fines, punishments have never been able to destroy its vitality. Its persecutors have died and gone to their own place, but the Word of God has lived and grown and multiplied. Weak as the church may appear to the eye of man, it is an anvil which has broken many a hammer in the past and perhaps will break many more before the end. He who lays hands on it is touching the apple of God's eye. The promise of our text is true to the whole body of the church of Christ. Christ will never be without a witness in this world. He has had a people in the worst of times. He had 7,000 in Israel even in the days of Ahab. The devil may rage horribly. The church may in some countries be brought exceedingly low, but the gates of hell shall never entirely prevail. The promise of our text is true and every the promise of our text is true of every member of Christ's true church. Some of God's people have been brought very low so that they are despaired of their safety. Some have fallen sadly, as David and Peter did. Some have departed from the faith for a time. Some have been tried by cruel doubts and fears, but all have gotten safely home at last. The youngest as well as the oldest, the weakest as well as the strongest, And so it will be to the end. Can you prevent tomorrow's sun from rising? Can you prevent the tide in the channel from ebbing and flowing? Can you prevent the planets moving from one, moving in their perspective orbits? Then and then alone, can you prevent the salvation of any believer, however feeble, of any living stone in that church which is built upon the rock? However small or insignificant, the stone may appear. The true church is Christ's body. Not one bone of that mystical body shall ever be broken. The true church is Christ's bride. They whom God has joined in everlasting covenant shall never be put asunder. The true church is Christ's flock. And when the lamb, when the lion came and took the lamb out of David's flock, David arose and delivered the lamb from his mouth. Christ will do the same. He is David's greater son. Not a single sick lamb in Christ's flock shall perish. And he will say to his father in the last day, I have not lost one of those you gave me. The true church is the wheat of the earth. It may be sifted. Winnowed, buffeted, tossed to and fro. But not one grain shall be lost. The tares and the chaff shall be burned, and the wheat shall be gathered into the barn. The true church is Christ's army. The captain of our salvation loses none of his soldiers. His plans are never defeated, his supplies never fail, his roll call is the same at the end as it was in the beginning. Of all the men that marched gallantly out of England a few years ago to the Crimean War, how many never came back? Regiments 
that went forth strong and cheerful with bands playing and banners flying, laid their bones in a foreign land and never returned to their native country. But it's not so with Christ's army. Not one of his soldiers shall be missing at last. He himself declares, they shall never perish. The devil may cast some of the members of the true church in prison. He may kill and burn and torture and hang, but after he has killed the body, there is nothing more he can do. He cannot hurt the soul. When the French troops took Rome a few years ago, they found on the walls of a prison cell under the Inquisition the words of a prisoner. Who he was, we do not know, but his words are worthy of remembrance. Though dead, he still speaks. He had written on the walls very likely after an unjust trial and still more an unjust excommunication. The following striking words, quote, Blessed Jesus, they can... They cannot cast me out of your true church. End quote. That record is true. Not all the power of Satan can cast out of Christ's church one single believer. The children of this world may wage fierce warfare against the church, but they cannot stop the work of conversion. What did the sneering emperor Julian say in the early ages of the church when he said, what is the carpenter's son doing now? End quote. An aged Christian made answer. Quote, he said, he is making a coffin for Julian himself. But a few months passed away when Julian, with all of his pomp and power, died in battle. There was Christ when, where was Christ when the fires of Smithfield were lighted? When Latimer and Ridley were burnt at the stake? What was Christ doing? And he was still carrying on his work of building. The work will ever go on even in troublesome times. Fear not, beloved brethren, to begin serving Christ. He to whom you commit your soul has all the power in heaven and earth, and he will keep you. He will never let you be cast away. Relatives may oppose you. Neighbors may mock you. The world may slander and sneer you. Fear not. Fear not, the powers of hell shall, not, shall never prevail against your soul. Greater is he who is for you than all those who are against you. Fear not for the church of Christ, my brethren. When ministers die and saints are taken away, Christ can ever maintain his own cause. He will raise up better and brighter stars. The stars are all in his right hand. Leave off all anxious thought about the future. Cease to be cast down about the measures of statesmen or the plots of wolves in sheep's clothing. Christ will ever provide for His own church. Christ will take care that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All is going on well, though our eyes may not see it. The kingdoms of this world shall yet become the kingdoms of our God in Christ. Allow me now to say a few words of practical application. I speak to many to whom I speak for the first time, and I speak perhaps to many whom I speak for the last time. Yet not this service, let not this service conclude without an effort to press home the sermon on each heart. First, I have a question. 
What shall be that question? How shall I approach you? What shall I ask you? Whether or not you are a member of the one true church of Christ, are you a member of the church built on the rock? I ask you with all solemnity, are you a member of that one true church of Christ? Are you joined to the great foundation? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Does the Spirit witness in your spirit that you are one with Christ and Christ with you? I beseech you in the name of God to lay to heart this question and to ponder it well. Take heed to yourselves, dear brethren. If you cannot give satisfactory answer to my inquiry, take heed, take heed that you do not make shipwreck of faith. Take heed lest the gates of hell prevail against you. The devil claim you as his own and you be cast away forever. Take heed lest you go down to the pit from the land of the Bibles and in the full light of Christ's gospel. Secondly, an invitation. I address it to all who are not yet, mem- are not yet true believers. I say to you, come and join the one true church without delay. Come and join yourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ in an everlasting covenant, not to be forgotten. Come to Christ and be saved. The day of decision must come sometime. Why not now? Why not today? While it is called today, why not this very night before the sun rises tomorrow morning? Come to my Master Jesus Christ. Come, I say, for all things are now ready. Mercy is ready for you. Heaven is ready for you. Angels are ready to rejoice over you. Christ is ready to receive you. Christ will receive you gladly and welcome you among His children. Come into the ark. And the flood of God's wrath will soon break upon the earth. Come into the ark and be safe. Come into the lifeboat. The old world will soon break into pieces. Do you not hear the tremblings of it? The world is but a wreck stuck on the sandbar. The night is far spent. The waves are beginning to rise. The winds are rising. The storm will soon shatter the old wreck. But the lifeboat is launched. And we, the ministers of the gospel, beseech you to come into the lifeboat and be saved. Do you ask, how can I come? My sins are many. Do you ask how you shall come? Hear the words of that beautiful hymn, Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. That is the way to come to Christ. You should come waiting for nothing and tearing for nothing. You should come as a hungry sinner to be filled, as a poor sinner to be enriched, as a vile, underserving sinner to be clothed in righteousness. So coming, Christ would receive you. He that comes to Christ will not be cast out and come to Christ. Lastly, a word of exhortation. To my believing hearers, live a holy life, my brethren. Walk worthy of the church to which you belong. Live like citizens of heaven. Let your light shine before men so that the world may profit by your conduct. Let them know whose you are and whom you serve. Be epistles of Christ. Known and read by all men. Written in such clear letters that none can say, we do not know whether he is a member of Christ or not. 
Live a courageous life, my brethren. Confess Christ before men. Whatever station you occupy, and whatever station, confess Christ. Why should you be ashamed of Him? He was not ashamed of you on the cross. He is ready to confess you now before His Father in heaven. Why should you be ashamed of Him? Be bold. Be very bold. The good soldier is not ashamed of his uniform. The true believer ought never to be ashamed of Christ. Live a joyful life, my brethren. Live like men who look for the blessed hope, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. This is the prospect to which we should all look forward. It is not so much the thought of going to heaven as of heaven coming to us, which should fill our minds. This is a good time coming for all the people of God, a good time for all the church of Christ, a good time for all believers. But there is a bad time coming for the impenitent and unbelieving. A bad time for those who serve their own lust and turn their backs on the Lord. But a good time for all true Christians. For that good time, let us wait. Watch. Pray. The scaffolding will soon be taken away. And the last stone will be brought. And the last stone will soon be brought out. And the top stone will be placed upon the edifices. In a little while, the full beauty of the building shall be clearly seen. The great master builder will soon come himself. The building shall be shown to us assembled worlds in which there shall be no imperfection. The Savior and the saved shall rejoice together. The whole universe shall acknowledge that in the building of Christ's church, all is well done. Let us pray.